0: to the Personal Injury Podcast from St John's Chambers. My name's Rachel Siegel. I'm here today with Matthew White. Morning. And we are going to talk a little bit about an issue arising out of use in practice of the Damages Claims Portal.
1: Where this comes from is that Rachel and I did a case against each other earlier in the year um, and it was chock full of procedural problems all springing from the fact that the DCP is uh, full of tripwires. And so what we're going to do is basically have a chat through some of those tripwires with a view hopefully to giving a steer on how to avoid the pitfalls that can otherwise cause you to come a
0: cropper. So a little bit of background, maybe, to the Damages Claims Portal. We'll refer to it as we go through, probably, as the DCP. Um, So what is it? Why does it exist? Depends on who you talk to to as to the answer to those questions. But in essence, as things currently stand, it is a pilot scheme which is intended to... Clarify, simplify and streamline the process of litigation in a large number of uh, claims through the court system. Uh, The pilot has been extended to run up to October 2024. Uh, By its very nature, as a pilot, it is an iterative process. The provisions within practice direction 51ZB are constantly changing. It's worth knowing that some of the elements, some of the features that are being introduced over time are only available in certain pilot court clusters rather than across the whole of England and Wales. And the take-home message here really is that all legal representatives will have to be very much alive to the question of which court will be handling their case so that they can avoid completing one of the steps that they need to complete offline that should in fact be completed online within the DCP.
1: So hold on a minute, since we did our case then, what you're saying is not only do you have to be on top of the rules as they apply at the time, and they keep changing, but they're different in different places too. Uh, yes. Great. Right.
0: And then as to the question of how one keeps up with this, it's a difficult. It's a difficult one to to answer. Uh, but the advice that we would give is to make sure that when you are starting a claim within the DCP that you save a copy of practice direction 51ZB at the time at which you're starting the claim so that you can be clear about what the provisions were at that point because it might be difficult in the future to trace exactly uh, what the provisions were when it comes to uh, a problem that occurs further down the line and you have to then look it up retrospectively.
1: Look, I can't resist going off on one here. Practice direction 51ZB. I remember when the Wolf Reforms happened and the idea was that the rules had got too complicated so that they were going to be simplified and over the years they've just got more and more complicated and more and more tripwires are being put out. Not entirely sure this is where the idea was we would end up. But anyway, sorry to interrupt.
0: That's a fair point and it's one with which I have a great deal of sympathy. I think the best thing to say at this stage is the idea in theory is fantastic and makes a lot of sense. In practice, however, it's rather a different matter and it is remarkably problematic. The provisions within the practice direction are or can be surprisingly labyrinthine and certainly they continue to cause quite a lot of confusion and frankly a fair bit of distress from a procedural perspective, which is precisely why it's important that everybody knows that it's important to read the practice direction 51ZB and the relevant moments in time and to be aware of what, in fact, they provide for.
1: A classic case of RFI, read the full instructions.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, Exactly. It's not something that that is going to be uh, worked out by a process of osmosis, that's (laughs) that's for sure. Yeah, fair news. So... It's worth knowing there are new features that are being rolled out all the time. For example, the ability uh, as of September 2023 to file a notice of change via the DCP or to file, in fact, a certificate of service. That's one of the features that has fairly recently been implemented. But the reality is it's going to take quite a while to settle. uh, And in the interim, there are bound to be a number of satellite applications arising from errors that are made because people don't understand enough about the provisions.
1: Yeah, the the starting point for the provisions, bearing in mind this is a PI podcast, this DCP is now mandatory for almost all PI claims. So uh, I reckon that everybody's pretty much got used to that idea now. Um, Claimants' listers are registered, defendants' listers are registered when they can be, although that's not all of them. Um, So we're moving pretty quickly, I reckon, past the idea the DCP exists, you need to be registered, you need to use it um, almost always in PI. Um, The process is chock full of tripwires, and so you've got to read it carefully. Um, And let's get on to having a look at some of those tripwires.
0: Okay, so probably makes sense to start off with looking at the notice requirements, which are set out under the practice direction at paragraph 1.92a in that this claimant solicitor must give at least 14 days' notice of the intention to bring the claim in the DCP.
1: Do You mean you've got to say a fortnight in advance that you're going to issue using the DCP? Yes. How does that play in relation to limitations? I suppose the, the client walks through the door of your office just before the three years is up and you've got to give notice... 14 days in advance, do you get an extra 14 days after the three-year limitation period or not? No, you don't. Right. So, what happens then if the claimant walks in at three years less a day and you think, eek, in the old days I'd have just issued a claim form right now, now you've got to give 14 days notice. How does that play?
0: Well, that is part of the problem and it's something that we don't necessarily have an answer to. And in fact, the provision is found at paragraph 1.6 of the practice direction, 1.62b, the claimant must give the defendant the notice referred to in paragraph 1.92a unless it is impractical to do so and the claim must be started using the procedure set out in this practice direction.
1: So a claimant solicitor would say it was impractical for me to give the two weeks notice because then my claim would have been out of time.
0: We presume so.
1: All right, but let's be cautious because we don't quite know what the arguments are going to be and what the court's going to say about it yet.
0: Exactly, and it is one of the many provisions that has not been tested in any way, shape or form that we know of at this point in time in the case law.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, look, in our case that we did earlier in the year, the notice requirement hadn't been complied with, and so um, that's the beginning of the procedural problems that the claimant uh, had. And it was quickly followed by this. Having issued in the DCP, you've got four months to uh, effectively serve. So that's not service in the old-fashioned way of um, putting it in the post or whatever. It's the process of using the portal to uh, serve on the defendant. You've still got four months. um, But what the claimant did on the last day for service, so the four-month anniversary of issue, the claimant wrote to the court to say this claim is now proceeding offline, and they put the claim form in the post on the last day, so it was notionally served in the old-fashioned sense, on time, but they didn't do it in the way that the DCP required them to do, which was using the portal. Instead, they said to the courts, what we're doing is not using the portal anymore, thanks very much, we're doing this the old way, and popped it in the post. Now, the problem with that is that the rules don't include any provision that allows a claim to proceed offline like that. Still less does it enable you to simply assert it and make it true. You can't just say, oh, we're not bothering with that process anymore. We're going off doing it our own way.
0: That's right. But the practice direction does provide for transfer out of the DCP. It's at section eight of the practice direction Uh, transfer of the claim out of DCP. And what it says at 8.1 is this, a claim may at any time be transferred out of the DCP. Now, what the practice direction does not do, or certainly hadn't done at that point uh, in time, was to define what constitutes transfer out of the DCP. The reality is that the drafting of 8.1 is discretionary. So a claim may be transferred out of the DCP at any time and an application for an order to transfer a claim out of the DCP may be made by an application under CPR part 23 and if it is it must be filed at the CNBC, so the Civil National Business Centre. But it's again discretionary. So there is no mandatory provision for such an application to be made, should a party wish to transfer a claim out of the DCP? So the argument that the claimant wanted to make uh, in in the case that, that we were Im- involved in, as far as we're concerned, by virtue of our assertion by virtue of the email that we sent to the court the matter has in fact been transferred out and in fact interestingly a few days later there was confirmation of that very transfer uh, by by the court office so (laughs) not only were were the solicitors involved in the case confused uh, but apparently so were the court staff as to what the correct procedure and what the correct protocol is
1: yeah, uh, there's an interesting thing just arisen from that. You're looking at the rules as you downloaded them today, referring to filing your application at the CNBC. I've got in front of me a copy of the rules as they were when we did that case a few months ago that refers to the CCMCC. So, <laughs> well, there you know, you it's interesting to see the changes happening before our very eyes. I, I,
0: indeed. I remember also, not that I can remember the exact detail of this, but at the time, on the day of the, the hearing or the point at which, in fact, the day before, when we were trying to negotiate a way forward, that in fact there hadn't been a further change to the rules and further changes to the practice direction, which made it even more confusing.
1: Well, it keeps us on our toes, doesn't it? Um, So, anyway, there we were. The claimant has... um not served as the DCP required, sent an email saying we're ploughing our own furrow, uh, contending that that'll do, uh, albeit defendant's contention would be that because paragraph 8.2 says you've got to make an application under CPR part 23, a letter isn't good enough. So we are turning up at a hearing uh, to unpick that and Uh, other issues. But just notice what's happened in the meantime to the uh, claim so far as the DCP is handling it. An email was sent just after four months from the date of issue in the DCP at five past one in the morning, 0105 in military terms, uh, saying that the claim was automatically dismissed because it hadn't been served, that is the defendant notified, through the DCP. Now, I know that the court staff is working very hard at the moment trying to clear court backlogs, but I'm fairly confident that at one oh five am that wasn't a person pressing a button to send an email. Rather, what's going on is there's an automated process that is noticing... This claim was issued just over four months ago. Nothing's happened. Therefore, it is automatically dismissed. Um, So it's time to draw lesson number one and probably lesson number two as well. Lesson number one, it seems to me, from all of this is comply with the service requirements. Um, it's a constant source of problems uh, for claimants that they don't serve in accordance with the rules. These rules are a bit of a tangle and to comply with the service requirements, you've got to do some untangling and work out exactly what you've got to do and then comply with it. The second thing to notice from it, don't think that you can just say, well, we're doing it like this and this is fair, the defendant's got the notice that they need, so that'll do, because it won't.
0: And to be on the safe side, if you do need to transfer out of the DCP, you need to do it in plenty of time. Don't leave it till the last minute, as in the case that we were involved in. There are questions that arise from that sort of situation, though. For example, what if you don't have that luxury of being able to transfer out or make an application to transfer out in plenty of time? And what about in a context in which applications can't be dealt with promptly within the court system? And what do we do if applications can't be made via the DCP itself, which apparently is the current problem? So at the moment, if you need to make an application in relation to a claim that is in the DCP, the application has to be made outside of the DCP until that feature is rolled out. I
1: I reckon all of this can be summed up with my favourite procedural phrase from Lincolnshire and Michelle. I love this phrase. I use it in Skeleton Arguments all the time. Don't dice with procedural death. I love it. I love the alliteration. I love the the whole concept, Um, probably because it's memorable. It shows a lack of sympathy on the court's part here. If you muck up service requirements, courts are fierce on that. They treat it as Everybody should know that service is really vital. You've got to do it in plenty of time so that if there is a drop of the ball... You've got enough time to pick it up and sort yourself out. And if you say to the court, oh, well, the claimant only walked into my office at three years less a day, and so I only had four months to get everything in order, um, I have to say, on a human level, that sounds completely reasonable and understandable, but the courts do lack sympathy on it. They are fierce on this. So getting on with it in plenty of time is the single biggest answer, because then you're not dicing with procedural death.
0: So I guess the next question would be, well, how is a claimant to get out of this problem? And the difficulty here was that practice direction 51ZB at paragraph 3.3 provided, if the claimant has not notified the defendant of the claim by the time specified in paragraph 3.2, so within time, then the claim against the defendant will be automatically dismissed without the need for any further order, which is precisely what happened at five past one in the morning, the next day, in our case. Paragraph 3.4 provided that if the claim is dismissed under paragraph 3.3, then any application for an order extending time must be made by an application for an order under CPR 7.6, which at the time was to be filed at the CCMCC. Now it would be under the CNBC, and
1: So 7.6 is old rules, right? They're what we're all used to, so the difference between an in, in-time in and an out-of-time application.
0: Exactly. We all know what CPR 7.6 provides. Uh, it, it is for extension of time for serving a claim form. 7.61 provides that the claimant may apply for an order extending the period for compliance with Rule 7.5 and that the general rule is that an application to extend the time for compliance with Rule 7.5 must be made within time, so within the period which is specified by that rule, or if there's been a court order uh, that has been made under that rule within that period for service that the order specifies. But if the claimant applies for an order to extend time for compliance after the end of the period specified by Rule 7.5, in other words, it's not an in-time application, it's a retrospective application then the court may make such an order only if either the court has failed to serve the claim form or both the claimant's taken all reasonable steps to comply with Rule 7.5 but has been unable to do so and in either case the claimant has made the application promptly.
1: So that that's the procedural death of many a claim, isn't it? Because when a claimant is making a retrospective application to extend time for service, I- invariably the reason why they need it is because someone somewhere has dropped the ball, um, at least in the cases that are regularly reported in PI. Uh, and so they try 7.6, saying, oh, can I have some extra time, please, um, because uh, we just didn't get this right. And the answer invariably is No.
0: Exactly right. That is all over the case law, uh, particularly in relation to uh, relief from sanctions. CPR 7.5 provides that where the claim form is served within the jurisdiction, as we all know, the claimant must complete the step required by the table that follows in relation to the particular method of service chosen before 12 midnight on the calendar day, four months after the date of issue of the claim form. And that period in itself, is no different in DCP claims in theory. So if first-class posts were the non-DCP way of serving, uh, you just need to post or leave with or deliver to or or have collected uh, the the document by that uh, point in time. In the cases of Abella and Badrani, and as I mentioned before, Barton and Wright-Hassel LLP do settle the importance of compliance with the rules in respect of service of the claim form. Now, that often has draconian uh, impact, but that is simply the way the cookie crumbles. There's no way of getting uh, around that unless you can satisfy the test that we've just outlined.
1: Yeah, so, hence, don't dice with procedural death, because um, you're probably going to get killed. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, in our case, going back to that, the claimant tried an alternative route um, by seeking relief from sanction under CPR 3.10. Well, 3.10 is the general power of the court to rectify matters where there's been an error of procedure. It's possible, of course, that what the claimant meant was um, we want relief from sanctions under 3.9, that everybody knows. Everybody knows that, Um does everybody know about the Denton resource? Um, I'll mention it just in case. It's uh, if you Google the Denton resource, then you'll be taken to um, a, a St John's Chambers website page with Rachel's photo on it, and um, it'll give you a link to. Uh, a table that um, has been created. I started it years ago and it's been sort of handed down um, through different people in chambers. And our aim has been, and, and Rachel and I have this conversation every year, we attempt to capture all the cases in which the court has had something to say about relief from sanction. And then they get grouped into... Uh, service issues, statement issues, expert issues, all the common areas. So you can quickly see what courts have been doing in cases uh, of the same time. Sorry, a bit of a sidetrack there um, for for a a quick plug. Anyway, um, what our claimant was doing was trying to say, well, I want relief from sanction and the expressly relied on provision was uh, 3.10. But it's long been known that you can't use 3.10 to get around what 7.63 requires – That is, 7.63, as a reminder, says words to the effect of, if you didn't serve in time and you make a retrospective application for an extension, the court will only give you the extra time after the event if you'd taken all reasonable steps to comply with serving in time. And you can't use 3.10 as a backdoor escape route.
0: Indeed. You can't use 3.10 to get around 7.6 subsection 3, but equally you can't use 3.9 of the CPR to do that either. You can't just do it through the Leaf from sanctions route either. And that simply outlines how important it is to ensure that as far as you possibly can, you are complying with the rules and, and planning as far ahead as you possibly can.
1: I think you put a note to that effect in the Denton resource, didn't you, somewhere? I did. Yeah, I thought yeah. so. Because in theory, 7.63 cases shouldn't appear in the Denton resource. But I think you say, well, this is why... Um, because you can't use 3.9 here.
0: Indeed, and and it's amazing how often it does recur within the case law. Again, as, as you say, Matthew, you'll find numerous examples within the Denton Resource, even within recent years.
1: Yeah.
0: But in terms of the background facts in the case that we were involved in, frustratingly, the claimant pretty much had most things on his side in that liability had been admitted The uh, insurer and the claimant's solicitors had been corresponding. The insurer most definitely knew about the claim. The insurer's solicitors knew about the claim. The insurer had asked to be served by the method that they were, in fact, served with Namely, by first-class post, albeit that's not what the DCP requires. But as you say, and using one of your favourite phrases, as with 7.6 cases, you you dice with procedural death. Very much... At your peril.
1: You introduced all of that as frustratingly, which I suspect is only because uh, you were representing the claimant. Um, but the point you make is a decent one n- namely, you can have what appears to be uh, fairness on your side and still come a cropper on these procedural tripwires. So let me attempt to wrap that up to some extent. What we've covered is this. DCP practice direction, Damages Claims Portal practice direction, is complicated. It takes some reading um, because it's constantly cross-referring within itself. And and you need to wrap your head around it unless you're confident that your firm has got a system in place that takes that problem away from you. And I'm very conscious that quite a lot of firms are moving in that direction, at least. Um, But it's full of procedural tripwires, full of things that you can get wrong. Um, So you need to be all over the rules the rules keep changing, which keeps you on your toes. Um, if there's one principle that emerges from it all, it's don't leave stuff till the last minute if you possibly can avoid it. And if you choose to leave it till the last minute when you don't need to, you're a donut. But let's just suppose that it has gone wrong, as it had done in our case. And procedural death has been diced with, and the figure of the grim reaper at the dicing table has won, and the claim is fatally wounded. There are some things that uh, parties need to have in their mind, and I'm, when I say parties, I mean both sides here. What they are, as it seems to me, is the limitation issue, the question of abusive process, and quacks. And I say that because it's very easy when you're representing defendants to get terribly excited about a fatal procedural wound. But in a PI case, you have to ask, is it, really as fatal as all that? Or is this a bit like an arcade game where you get a couple of lives? And what I'm thinking is this, you've got your three-year limitation period, and let's face it, if you've mucked up service, that's probably because you issued right at the end of the three years, you had four months, and you've mucked up at the end of the four months. So that claim is dead. What about having another go? Well, two problems. Firstly, you're out of time. Secondly, the defendant might be saying, ah, well, it's an abusive process. Thing is, on the first of those problems, you're out of time. A Section 33 application's got an awful lot going for it. That is, an application to disapply the three-year limitation period on the basis that it would be fair, because the defendant knew all about the case in time, and um, you've just fallen foul of a procedural tripwire which would leave the defendant with a potential argument that there's an abuse of process here, um, but I suspect everybody um, remembers Actas and Adepta uh, to the effect of, for it really to be an abuse if you have a second go when you've simply fallen foul of a procedural tripwire is not terribly likely. You are likely to uh, get off the hook. Um, So a defendant needs to be asking itself, all right, the, the claimant has mucked this up. If I do get them struck out, won't they just go again and i will be in the same position? Do I want to use this stick to uh, hit them with? And the answer to that might, of course, be yes, but it ain't necessarily so.
0: And in fact, that problem is to some extent at least compounded by qualified one-way cost shifting because this type of dismissal of claim is not the kind of strikeout that will disapply quarks Specifically, the section on qualified one-way cost shifting at CPR 44.15, where it provides that orders for costs made against the claimant may be enforced to the full extent of such orders without the permission of the court, where the proceedings have been struck out on the grounds that A, the claimant has disclosed no reasonable grounds for bringing the proceedings. Well, nope, that doesn't apply here. Uh, Where the proceedings are an abuse of the court's process, well, I'll say, hmm, to that, we might have a further conversation. Or the conduct of the claimant or a person acting on the claimant's behalf and with the claimant's knowledge of such conduct is likely to obstruct the just disposal of the proceedings. Well, that didn't apply in our case either. So supposing that the defendant kept the claim dismissed, uh, would they then expect a cost order in their favour, but actually find that they weren't able to enforce it? Well, most likely in the case that we're talking about. Uh, and then the problem would be that in a second claim, there would be no mechanism by which the cost of the first claim could be Offset. Yeah, mm.
1: maybe. I might have had a go, if if that had been our factual matrix, I might have had a go at saying in relation to the second claim that it would be an abusive process unless the claimant paid the defendant's costs of the first go. I'm not, I'm not saying that that argument would necessarily have worked out, but it would definitely be something a defendant would want to think about.
0: And what I would have done in respect of any such costs order had it in fact uh, been deemed appropriate would have been, well, hang on a minute, in fact, this is a case that initially started in the low-value claims portal, not the DCP, that's not a detail that we've mentioned as yet, but this was a feature of that particular case. So there's potentially a quader point on costs because the matter had not been allocated.
1: Yeah, so fixed fixed costs only, even if the claimant does have to offset them or or pay them to avoid an abusive process. And even
0: worse, interim application costs. So you would have got £250 plus VAT and no more.
1: Yeah, interesting. At least
0: that's what I would have tried. On the limitation point, though, it's probably worth saying that practice direction 51ZB expressly provides that paragraph 6.1 of practice direction 7A does not apply to the DCP. So outside the DCP, if the claim form as issued was received by the court office prior to the date of issue, then the claim would normally be brought for the purposes of the limitation Act 1980 and any other relevant statute for that matter uh, on that earlier date. But that does not apply where DCP claims are concerned so it is a very important limitation pitfall
1: yeah isn't isn't that just because if you issue your claim in the old fashioned way by getting a claim form to the court then the court knows that a human isn't actually going to process that for a while so they stop the clock uh, when you get the claim form to them whereas in the portal it's supposed to be at least an instant process so once you upload it your work is done and and there can't be a lag between you getting it into the system and actually the thing being issued.
0: Well, can't there? Well, the reality is we don't know. And what if there's an IT outage, etc.? We don't know is the reality of that particular point. But it's a fair point and it does make sense. But it's just, I raise it because it's something that is worth being aware of in this context. So I think we can probably bring this towards a conclusion with some lessons they're pretty straightforward ones number one don't dice with procedural death secondly make sure that you familiarize yourself with the provisions of the practice direction and that's whether you are a claimant legal representative or a defendant legal representative uh, this is a process the DCP uh, which is not going away anytime soon and it is something with which you need to be familiar, not least so that you can A, avoid pitfalls and B, how best to respond to them on the other side of them uh, when they do arise. Then finally, complying with service requirements, obviously, as we've we've outlined, is absolutely crucial. And don't think that it's okay to do what you want to do just because it seems to be reasonable. It needs to fit within the DCP rules, the DCP practice direction in particular, which contains a number of different tripwires.
1: Those do seem to me to be the simple conclusions of what we've been talking about. But I can't help but notice that there is something else, some sort of undercurrent going on here. And the DCP is another example of it. It seems to me to be a, another example of what's been the direction of travel for years now, which is that PI as a discipline is just becoming more and more specialist. That that issue, I mentioned Section 33 of the Limitation Act earlier, because everybody, everybody practicing PI knows about that. And that, I suppose, has been a specialist point that we've all known about for ages. But... Just one thing after another is being added to the essential knowledge of a PI practitioner. Quox is something that still feels to me relatively new. uh, And you have got to know those rules inside out. Um, You've also got to know about the rules as they change with the question, for example, of offsetting costs orders being something that's changed relatively recently. Here's yet another thing. Um, that we need to be on top of as PI practitioners, because you are at real risk uh, of missing a trick uh, if you don't know the rules well. Um, but I reckon that it would be sensible to finish with this observation. You're going to make mistakes. Everybody's going to make mistakes. When a claimant uh, issues a claim form using the DCP, one of those trip tripwires is going to get you. And it seems to me that A very significant take-home point here has got to be, don't bury your head in the sand. Because it's always the getting out of the mistake that causes more problems, or potentially causes more problems, than making the mistake in the first place. Everybody's going to make mistakes, own it, uh, and hopefully some of this will have been a useful tour through how to minimise the risk, but also how to get out of it.
0: Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for listening. This has been the St John's Chambers Personal Injury Pod session on the Damages Claims Portal.
1: Bye.